<laughs> Did you guys have a good day? Oh, good. Well, hey, when I was in high school, one of the first jobs that I had was a very illustrious job. Uh, I had the pleasure of working in the food court at the mall. Yeah. At a place called Dairy Queen, okay? Oh, I know. You may know it as the source of the world-famous blizzard where they make your ice cream and they do this, oh, but it doesn't fall out. That was me, guys. I was pumping out those magical treats all day, okay? And one day, I go into work, and I'm prepping the food for later. I'm cutting up like little banana slices, cutting the strawberries into half, and I'm getting things ready, and I get it all set up, and we're good. But while, we're, while I'm doing that, uh, my knife slips, and it goes, and it cuts my finger. And I'm like, oh, and I'm evaluating, like, what, what degree? Is this a hospital cut? Is this a, and it's not. It's a bleeder, but it's not a hospital cut, right? Like you put pressure on it, and then you check it, and it's still bleeding. It was one of those. So I grab a Band-Aid. I clean it off. I put the Band-Aid on. I, I keep pressure on it, and then after a little bit, it stops bleeding. But there was some blood. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah, we're clear. Good. Good. Okay. I'm fine. I go on. A lady comes up to the counter, and she orders a ginormous strawberry banana smoothie, which I am a little bit partial, but I would say that's the best smoothie that we Dairy Queen smoothie makers make, you know? So I'm like, it would be my honor. I am a pro at this. Here we go. So I go back to the blender and I start adding her ingredients. I add the ice cream. I add the milk. I put the bananas in. I put the strawberries in. And, and I go to put the lid on and I just I hit the button and right? I'm looking at her like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. And I get her giant cup and I pour the whole thing in. I put the lid on and I hand it to her. And then she pays. And right after she pays, I hand her her card back. She grabs her, her uh, smoothie and she bends her straw. She takes a big drink. And she goes, and she starts to walk away. And guys, at this moment, time slows down. Because as I handed it to her, I realized something in this picture is missing. My Band-Aid's gone. My stomach turns into knots, my heart starts racing, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I start like checking, like maybe it fell off and got stuck on me, maybe it's stuck on the camera, maybe it fell on the, on the and I, I, I realized it was just kind of out of my periphery. I remember when I went to put that lid on the blender, something felt different. Guys, it must have sucked the Band-Aid off of my finger, pulled it into the blender, blended it completely into the smoothie, and this lady is now happily walking away, drinking my scabby, bloody Band-Aid smoothie. And I did what any self-respecting high school student would do with the job. I walked away and hid in the back room. <laughs> but guys, that feeling that you just felt of disgust, of repulsion, where you're like, oh, right? That's the point. That's the reason I tell you this story. Does a gross, scabby Band-Aid have any business being anywhere near a really good smoothie? No. Guys, the problem is God is the smoothie and you are the Band-Aid. I am the Band-Aid. Do you remember last night when we were talking about sin? We talked about the fact that sin doesn't just sit in the corner like a good dog, like we can just leave it alone and pretend like it's not there, that it grows, that it becomes our undoing, right? We talked about the fact that sin is more powerful than us, that there is nothing we can possibly do to conquer, to override our sin. We are doomed and destined to be ruled by our sin, and it feels pretty hopeless. And, and you could have walked away from last night going, 
I agree, that's my experience, this stinks, I'm just set to experience guilt and shame and feeling dirty for the rest of my life. But guys, the point I'm making tonight is that that's not all. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, that we are to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. And God, who is blameless and pure and sinless, has no business interacting with something as dirty and tainted and disgusting as us. We are the band-aid. He is the smoothie. It cannot be. We read these verses fast last night, but right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Sin doesn't just make us feel guilty in this life and overpower us. The Bible makes it very clear. Sin completely disqualifies you and I from ever interacting with this good God that we've been talking about all week. And being separated from the one who is love itself, who is truth itself, who is grace itself, there's nothing left that's literally called hell. Like our sin overwhelms us, separates us from God, and dooms us to hell. That is the situation that every single one of us, you and I, find ourselves in. And there's a good God who exists out there. And so tonight, as we continue through the book of John, what we're going to look at is how Jesus responds to our hopeless problem of sin. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And when you get there you know what to do. Are you really already there? Wow, you guys are like, you guys are like Bible assassins. <laughs> now, now, I want to I wanna prep you for this. What we're doing right now is called a flyby. We're just going to like hit a verse. I'm going to show you a couple things next chapter. Show you a couple things next chapter. Because one of the things that you're going to get out of camp this week is you'll be able to go, I have a pretty good grasp of the entire book of John. But in order to do that, we have to do a flyby like this. So you, you are at John chapter 10. This is true. Is this accurate? Okay. All right. Good. Just checking. All right. In John chapter 10, Jesus gives one of my favorite analogies. It's just simple. It's clear. He, he compares himself to a shepherd. And in chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So he's a good shepherd, and he's comparing us to sheep. And guys, this, is, this isn't as bad news as it sounds, but sheep are dumb, okay? Sheep wander off from the flock, and then they just become easy bait for like a wolf or something, right? You could, a sheep could like get stuck in a prickly bush and just be laying there. And Jesus is saying, as a good shepherd, his response is he doesn't kick the sheep and go, come on! He protects the sheep, right? He says that he, as a good shepherd, would lay down his life for the sheep. If, if you and I as a sheep encountered a predator or something, Jesus as the good shepherd would be there to rescue, right? Except for you and I, it's not an animal that's higher on the food chain than us, right? We as the sheep are threatened by our sin that dooms us to hell. And he as the good shepherd says, I would lay down my life to rescue you from the thing that threatens you. As we move on, I told you we're doing a flyby. John chapter 11, we encounter not a teaching of Jesus, we encounter a miracle of Jesus. And this one is especially poignant, and it's probably very personal for Jesus because it's not a stranger that he's about to heal. It's someone in his group of friends. I don't know if you've ever thought about Jesus having a group of friends, but he does. We have them named. And so in this group of friends, one of these guys, his name is Lazarus. He gets really sick and he dies. 
And this friend group is just absolutely devastated. Their hearts are broken. They're beside themselves. They're mourning. They're weeping. And Jesus isn't able to get there until four days after his death. The body's probably stinky. Like, this is a terrible situation. And they know that he's God, that he probably could have done something. And so there's all these mixed emotions. And Jesus shows up in John chapter 11. And this is what it says about him. In in, uh, chapter 11, verse 33, it says, When Jesus saw her, one of these friends, weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and in trouble. And he was troubled. In verse 35, it says, Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And And the passage goes on to explain that Jesus does the miracle, that he brings this friend back to life, and it's absolutely amazing, and their hope is restored, and everybody is excited. But the reason this is important in our succession, I think the reason John put it here is because he wanted to remind us of something. Jesus is fully human. Right? Jesus isn't just this supernatural robot walking around looking like us but with all the powers and doesn't feel anything. Right? Jesus felt all the emotions that you and I do. In this moment, he felt despair to the point that it made him cry. He was sad. In the course of his life, he'll experience feelings of stress and frustration, of sadness, of disappointment. Jesus was fully human, and all of his friends knew that. But yet, at the same time in this miracle, it is also obviously clear, Jesus was fully God, Right? He just brought a dead man back to life. He has power over life and death. Jesus is fully man and fully God. And that brings us to John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, <laughs> I don't know if you'll think this is as, as funny as I do, but I love it when there's like quirky things in the Bible, okay? What we're told is that the Pharisees hate the fact that Jesus brought Lazarus back to death because so many people's minds were blown and they started trusting Jesus that the Pharisees are like, this is terrible, right? And in in chapter 12, verse 10, it says, so the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. Like my weird brain goes off to like, what if you're Lazarus and you're like, I'm alive. Oh, I'm getting sick. I'm dead. And then Jesus heals you and you're like, I'm alive again. And then you find out people are going to try to kill you. And you're like, not again. Like, can you imagine dying twice? You know what I mean? I don't think they get him, but that's crazy to me. Anyway, the the main thing in John chapter uh, 12 is this little phrase that has actually been in a lot of the chapters that we've read so far, but we haven't had the time to look at it. In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come. And this is the first time he says this. In contrast, in in chapters past, he has always said, the hour has not come yet. It's not my time yet. Right? There have been multiple moments where the Pharisees and the religious leaders have tried to seize them. And he eluded them. He got away. They couldn't do it. That wasn't just because he was slippery or because he could run fast. Right? Remember we talked a few nights ago about this, this wrong idea we have of Jesus where he was weak and the bad guys got the best of him. Well, what Jesus is expressing here is his power. He's saying, the reason that I haven't gone to the cross yet, the reason they haven't caught me and arrested me and do all the things we'll talk about tonight, it's not because it hasn't worked out yet. It's because I, in my power, have decided this is not time yet. But now, Jesus, as God flips the switch, and he says the time has come. And from this moment on, things start falling in a rapid pace and quick succession. He is now allowing himself to go into this persecution process of being tried, although he's innocent. It reveals his power. In John chapter 13. How are you guys doing with this flyby? Is this weird? Oh, you're rolling. This is great. Okay, good. Well, then turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is that famous moment in verse 2 
where he's sitting with the disciples. They're having dinner. And he gets down and he starts washing their feet. And we could do a whole message just on this, but the small point that I want to put in front of you is the reason that this is so significant is probably because of the timing. Guys, he knows that he doesn't have much time with them left. And when he thinks about all the things that he could communicate to them before he's gone, this makes the top of his list. And so as an example to them, he washes their feet. And what he's trying to show them is, look, if you want to be great as a Jesus follower, I'll show you how. It's the exact opposite of the way the world does it. The world makes everything about making yourself look better than other people. But you know how you'd be a great Jesus follower? I want to show you this example. It's through humility. It's through treating other people better than you even treat yourself. It's through serving them well and loving them well and sacrificing, them for, sacrificing for them. That's what I've done for you. And that's how you pass on my love to other people. He's modeling this for them so they will be able to communicate Jesus' love after he's gone. And then this one we will read in John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus has this interaction, this conversation with his disciples, <laughs> and they don't get it. You remember the bread thing where Jesus was like, here's my point, and they're like, we don't get it, over and over and over again? I don't know. I just tend to like those ones. This is kind of like that. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. He's talking about heaven. We get that because we already know the whole story. But this is so confusing to them. <laughs> Look at what Thomas does. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? He's like, what? This doesn't make sense. The words you're saying, not working in here. You're going to need to explain this. And then Jesus says something incredibly profound, famous at this point. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's saying, Thomas, you do know the way. Everything I've been explaining to you, I've told you, I am the living water. I am the good shepherd. I am everything that you need. I'm sufficient. I am the way. I'm all you need. I'm the truth. I'm everything you need to understand. I'm the life. I'm the thing that satisfies, that fills you up, that enables you to do what you need to do on this earth. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And in, in this thing, I, I wanna, I'm taking a risk right now, you guys. This is something that probably typically gets taught at a high school level, but to me, if I could have understood this at a junior high, as a junior higher, it would have helped so much in my confidence in Jesus, but it's kind of complicated. Can we go a little bit nerd tonight? Yeah. If you're down, say, Ooh. oh, you guys are the best. Okay, here's what I want you to understand. What Jesus is saying is, in all of history, there has never been the right combination that could possibly save you from your sin. The solution didn't exist. It was impossible. It's why we've been so stuck in our, in our position as sinners separate from God. There was no solution. What he's saying, and the reason it's so mind-blowing is because he's saying, finally, the right combination has come. There is a solution, and he's standing right in front of you. And here's the reason that this works. The solution to our sin had to be fully human, fully sinless, and fully God. Jesus is the only one in history who has ever been that combination. 
The reason it had to be fully human is because what does our sin earn? Death. This thing, this solution has to be able to die to take that consequence, right? But the solution also has to be fully sinless, has to have no sin of its own, right? Think about if I said, hey, you know what? You're a criminal. You have a prison sentence that you're about to serve. I'll serve it for you. But if I have my own prison sentence, can I do that? No, I'm doing my own time. But if I'm an innocent man and the judge agreed to this and I said, I will do your prison time for you, would that work? Yeah, because I don't have a penalty that I already have to serve. I could take yours from you. So the solution to our sin has to be fully human, capable of dying, has to be fully sinless. And we know that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, innocent life so that he could take the consequence from you and put it on himself. But then thirdly, the solution to our sin has to be fully God because if Jesus was just one good man, how many people could he save with his one life? One. But if God is as all-powerful as we came to understand night one, and he is infinite in his nature, then how many people can God save? The answer is an infinite amount. Jesus being fully human, fully sinless, and fully God actually logically makes sense why he can solve our sin problem. But it's even more significant than that. What if the right combination was all those things, and they didn't love you? And they said, I could solve your problem, but I don't care. It's amazing that Jesus is the right combination, and then he looks at you and I and goes, and I love you so severely that as the good shepherd, I'm willing to lay down my life for you and die to solve your sin problem. And, and the thing that blows me away about this, you guys, is that there are people who look at Christianity, at the Bible, at the words of Jesus, and they go, that is the most intolerant, narrow-minded, exclusive thing I've ever heard. How offensive. There's only one way to God. And if you're not careful, you can hear that reasoning and go, yeah, wait, you're saying only Christian, there's only one way? But, but let me put it to you this way. I want you to imagine for a second, if I told you tonight with tears, guys, I just got a terrible prognosis. I just found out I have a cancer and there's, I only have like a week, maybe two to live and there is no known cure for what I have. Like I am a dead man walking. It's pretty much guaranteed that I'm gonna die. And then those back doors flung open and a doctor in a white lab coat comes running in here holding a test tube and he goes, no, that's not true. Like this second, I just stumbled upon the answer. I have the cure. You don't have to die. You can be cured fully. How incredibly stupid would it be if I said, whoa, 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 you, you can just stop right there at the back door, doctor. Are you telling me you only have one cure? And from here, it appears to be pink. I want options, not pink. I want blue. I want yellow. I want at least four things to choose from. You can keep your cure. What would you say to me? You'd be like, you have a screw loose, man. You don't want, you could, you are destined to die. There was no way. And now there's a way. That's amazing. You can't afford to dismiss this. That is what is true with Jesus and our sin problem. There was no way. We were impossibly lost in our sin. We can't save ourselves, destined to hell. And Jesus, the only right combination in history, looked at you and made a way. It is amazing that there is even a way that exists. But don't forget, we're going through our flyby. Tomorrow, we're going to look at 15 and 16. Those have to do with some Holy Spirit stuff we're going to talk about. And the only thing I want to tell you in John chapter 17 that blows my mind is that Jesus prays three different prayers. One, he prays for himself because he's not showing up confident, ready to go. He's, he's going to ask God in the Garden of Gethsemane, like, God, if there's any other way to save these people than me dying, would you, anything, please. 
and there's not. And so he prays for himself. He also prays for his disciples. But did you know in John chapter 17, Jesus prays for you and me? This means when, when he does what it takes in order to save us from our sins, he's thinking of you and me. And, and not Hume Lake, not this group, not your youth group. You specifically were on his mind. And he was praying and thinking about you. I want you to know God. I want you to be saved from your sins. God, Father, please let it be so. That's pretty incredible. And that brings us to where we're going to spend our time tonight, to John chapter 18. And in the life of Jesus, where we have arrived is this moment after the disciples' last meal with Jesus, Judas will leave, and he will exchange Jesus' very life for a payment of silver. He's going to tell the religious leaders where Jesus currently is. They're going to bring a group. Well, I'll just read it to you. Here's what it says in, in John 18, verse 3. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. They show up, and Jesus goes, who are you looking for? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, I am he. And I don't know if it's that he says it so boldly or that they're overwhelmed that he's not afraid or something supernatural happens, but it says that they all fall to the ground. They, he, he asks them again, who is it that you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Peter, being Peter, pulls a sword out from somewhere. One of these guys in the group about to arrest Jesus, he goes, hi and he cuts off his ear. Guys, again, my weird brain wonders, like, what sound does an ear make when it falls off of a head and lands on the ground? You know what I mean? Is it, is it, I, I don't know. But in other accounts of this, we're told that Jesus then picks up the ear. What? This is worse than my bandit in the smoothie. And he puts it back on the guy's head and heals him. Now, if I were Jesus, I would have put it on a little bit too far forward so that he would never forget, I am the Lord. You know what I mean? But, but the, the point in this moment, Jesus is going to say in verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink from the cup the Father has given me? This is what he's saying. He's reminding Peter, no, 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 no. I'm not being overtaken right now. You don't have to protect me. I have allowed this to happen. There's no other way. These people need to be saved from their sin. I'm not backing down now. Put your sword away, Peter. This has to happen. I'm going through with it. That's what Jesus is saying. The ear's been cut off. We find ourselves now where P Jesus has been arrested. He's been brought in front of one of the authorities at the time. His name is Pilate. And we pick up in John chapter 18. Verse 37, Jesus is having a conversation with this man who can literally decide whether he lives or dies. And Pilate says, you're a king then. Jesus answered, you are right in saying, I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And in verse 38, Pilate says, what is truth? You and I know what it is. Pilate doesn't even stick around to find out. It says that he walks away. And Pilate actually doesn't want this to happen to Jesus. He will say three times in the course of this thing, I find no basis for a charge against him. Again, reminding us, Jesus is innocent. Jesus is not a criminal. Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. And Jesus' innocence is important. Why? Because it reminds us he's actually capable of taking our consequence of death as our substitute in his innocence. He's fully innocent. And then in John chapter 19, there's just this one word 
that Christians usually skip over, and we're not going to tonight. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And guys, I'm going to describe some things to you tonight that are gory. And I want to tell you before we go into these, my goal is not to emotionally manipulate you. It's not to make you cry. But if we're spending a week talking about the truth of who God is, the truth of our sin, and the truth of what our sin cost, then we have a responsibility to understand these things in detail. Can we do that? Okay. Before Jesus even gets to the cross, he's already doing the work that it's going to take to be the sacrifice for our sin. See, flogging would have meant that they would have stripped his clothes off, that he would have had his, his hands tied in front of him to a pole, and a Roman legionnaire, someone who is skilled and expert in the art of torture and execution, had something in his hand called the cat of nine tails. And the cat of nine tails had multiple strips of leather hanging off of it, and at the ends of those strips of leather were tied shards of bone and heavy lead balls. And it, what was that? A balloon. Woo! And hiya! Look at that. You're back focused in. Here we go. So picture this moment. Remember, Jesus is fully man. He experiences every emotion you and I do. He experiences every feeling you and I do, and that includes pain. That includes terror. That includes fear. And as he sits here tied and exposed, the Roman legionnaire with his cat of nine tails would have brought the full force and full swing down over his shoulders and back, and those lead balls would have hit first, probably bruising, knocking the wind out of him, causing deep tissue bruises of purples and pinks and yellows. Those lighter shards of bone would have come after, grabbing, scratching, pulling full ribbons of skin off of Jesus' back, him feeling it all the while, probably crying out in agony over and over again with his full strength. The Roman legionnaire would have done this 39 times because he fully understood that 40 times would kill him. Before Jesus even goes to the cross, they have purposely brought him within an inch of his life. And still before he's crucified, we're told that multiple of these Roman soldiers begin to mock him and spit on him. They put a purple robe on him and they twist a crown of thorns. And don't think rosebush thorns. Some of these thorns in Israel are an inch, two inches long, and they bash them into his head. He's now bleeding profusely from his head. And with this mockery crown and this mockery robe, they strike him and say, prophesy, who hit you? He's not just writhing on the outside. He's probably writhing on the inside. And probably after this robe has coagulated into his back with the blood drying, they rip it off again, freshening all those wounds that they put into him 39 times with those lashes. And after this is done, we're told that they make him carry the cross member of his cross through the streets of Jerusalem to the execution site that they knew as Golgotha, which meant the hill of the skull. And when he got there, Roman legionnaires would have held him down, and with something like railroad spikes, driven them with a wooden mallet in between the bones in his wrists, driving them inch or so at a time, purposely here because between those bones would be the place where the entire weight of the human body could be held up. But also, this would have been a pressure point that every time one of those things is driven in, it causes searing pain to move through the entire body, through the tops of his feet. He is now affixed to the cross in absolute pain. 
And guys, someone didn't die when being crucified from blood loss, from pain. They died from suffocation because you were positioned in such a way that in order to breathe, you had to pull yourself up with all your weight bearing down on those nails so that your lungs could expand. But you couldn't hold yourself here because of the sheer agony. And so you would sink back down, unable to breathe, and until it got worse, you would have to rise up to breathe again. All the while, your raw, exposed back scraping up and down on the rough, splintery wood of the cross. This is the price that was necessary to be paid for your sin and for mine. And Jesus gets to the point where he has no life left in him. And in John chapter 19... Verse 30, he simply says this, it is finished, and he dies. And that phrase has so much meaning in it. He's not just saying, my life is finished and I'm over. What Jesus is saying in this moment is, it's a banker's term. It means paid in full, to tetelestai. He's saying, the price that your sin earned, the wages of your sin, which was death, have been paid in full. Guys, the reason this is good news and not just some terrible, morbid story is because he accomplished the thing that was impossible, that you and I couldn't accomplish for ourselves, the combination that never existed in all of history. It existed now, and he loved us enough to give his very life, and it arrives in this moment where he says, it is finished. The price has been paid. If you so choose... The burden, the shame, the guilt of your sin is now for the first time ever capable of being removed off of your shoulders and placed on his. He did it. But that alone isn't why we call this good news. I think we'd still probably be sadists. Think about the love that's represented in this moment. Jesus saw you and I drowning in our sin, powerless to save ourselves, destined for hell when we die. And he said, I love you too much to let that happen. I'll take your place. I'll take the penalty. I'll take the pain. I'll do it. And he did it. But, but this is probably my favorite part. If we're not careful, again, this moment can seem like lots of love, but lots of weakness. That Jesus was overcome by the bad guys. He was beaten. It got the best of him. That's it. And he loved us, right? But what most people don't realize is this this was an absolute moment of power. We get more details in Matthew chapter 27, but there we're told that at the moment of Jesus' death, there was supernatural darkness. There was an earthquake. And at the moment that he died, the tombs of many dead people broke open and they were raised to life. That the centurions at the base of the cross who were responsible for killing him said, surely this was the son of God. It was obvious to everyone, even in his death, this is no mere man who simply has a lot of love in his heart. This was God himself, the word become flesh, come to live among us, not just to teach us truth, but to save us from the truth of our sin. It is finished. And even there we know that it's not done. Because three days later, what happened? He rose from the grave. The the Bible literally says, oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? He punched death in the face like a weak enemy and proved his victory on our behalf in a moment of his deep, deep love for us, and he put it all on display. Guys, John 15, 13 says, man has no greater love than this, 
that he lay down his life for his friend. And so for you tonight, you may be hearing this for the first time. The power of what Jesus did on the cross is not that it makes us sad. The power of what Jesus did on the cross is that he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he can bring dead things back to life. And if you and I were dead in our sin, destined for hell, he didn't just prove he could bring dead things back to life. He extends that power to you and I, and he says, I offer you now life in the place of your sin that caused death. And you and I have the option to choose. It's a question we've been asked before. What do you do with Jesus? And some of you in here have never chosen to surrender your sin to Jesus, to ask him for forgiveness, to take your guilt and shame off of your shoulders and thank him for taking it onto his. None of you have ever done that. And guys, I don't just want to invite you to say a small prayer. I also want to remind you, Jesus referred to himself as king. If we choose to accept the forgiveness of our sins that we so desperately need, what we also choose to accept is the name that he gives himself. He didn't die to be my friend. He didn't even just die to take my sin. He died to be my Lord and my King. And so for those of us who are in a spot where we go, God, I'm drowning in my sin. I'm done living life my way. I've seen what happens when I rule my own life. I surrender my life to you. I surrender my sin to you. You have proven yourself a good God and I want to follow you. That may be you tonight. And I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads right now. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you to do something else. If you have never accepted Jesus' forgiveness, and you feel maybe God's talking to you tonight, he's got your attention, and you want to accept that forgiveness for the first time, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to stand. And that may seem scary. It's not to embarrass you. It's actually for, I'd say, good reason. Because I believe if you can't stand to proclaim that you've accepted the love and life and forgiveness of Jesus in a room full of Christians who would celebrate you, then you're also probably not ready to go stand as a Christian back home. And that's okay. But if that's accurate to you and you want to accept Jesus' forgiveness right now, I'm going to invite you to stand in one, two, three. Go ahead and stand if that's you. Guys, I want you to know this, what the Bible says, not in general, but about this moment that you have had with God right now. It says that when people come from death to life, when they accept Jesus' forgiveness, the angels in heaven rejoice now because of you. That's pretty awesome. And if it's okay, guys, I just want to pray for you specifically for a moment. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we thank you that as you say in your word, that you demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Jesus, every single one of us needed you and we're destined for hell and separation from you to be overrun by our sin. Thank you. Thank you for making a way when there was none. For these students, God, I pray that you would give them absolute relief, that you would give them clear consciences, that they would feel the removal of the guilt and shame of their sin, God. God, and I I pray not just for this moment for a feeling, God, but would you give them everything that they need in order to live a life equipped to grow in obedience and glory to you. God, thank you for what you have done in their hearts. May they never take that for granted. In Christ's name we pray, Amen. amen. Guys, hold on, hold on.
Listen, I want to pray for one more group of you. There's some of us in here where we go, you know what? I'm pretty sure I've been a Christian for a long time. I I knew what Jesus did for me. But I think I've, I've got to a point where I've taken it for granted. I actually haven't been living like Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I've been living like I'm my own Lord and Savior, and I've been sinning whenever I want. I've kind of forgotten what it even means to obey Jesus because I just haven't been paying attention. And maybe tonight what God has been doing in your heart is just that, that faint whisper of like, come back. You don't make a good Lord of your life. You need Jesus. Maybe you, maybe you came to a point where you appreciate the work that he did for you on the cross again. And I'm not going to ask you to stand, but if it's okay... This is what I would ask you to do. Make a decision in your heart to repent. Repentance just means that you turn from your sin. And you say, God, I was walking away. I wasn't living for you. I wasn't responding well to your love for me. Would you help me to live a life that loves you back well? Let me pray for you. God, for these students in here who have known you, who have maybe let the idea of a Christian life become boring, white noise that doesn't mean anything to them, God, I pray that you would just reignite a fire in them that you would help them to live in the blessing of obedience. God, that you, would, that you would grow their consciences, that you would give them success as they choose between right and wrong, that you would use it to develop their character in ways that they enjoy. God, would you bless them as you renew their interest and their love in you. And God, for us too, thank you for even making yourself available to us who already knew you. We love you, and we thank you so much for tonight. In Christ's name we pray, amen.